there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The subject of forgiveness is one that I think most of us have to go back to again and again. And we find ourselves wishing that someone who has deeply hurt us would have the grace to ask for forgiveness. Perhaps years have gone by, but the memory yet remains. Why not simply take the hurt to the foot of the cross? Isn't that the place where all such things should be dealt with? Simply take the hurt to the foot of the cross and leave it there. Remember Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress when he reached the hill of Calvary. His burden fell off his back, rolled down the hill into the tomb, and he said, He hath given me rest by his sorrows and life by his death. So I don't know who I may be talking to this afternoon who has some unfinished business that caused a rift. God knows, and you know, and remember that there is balm in Gilead, which can make the wounded whole. Baron Vogue Hugo describes that wonderful balm, and this is B-A-L-M, of course, the law of suffering and sacrifice is the one way to joy and possession. The law of suffering and sacrifice is the one way to joy and possession. I'm going to give you three points, and then there are going to be a number of sort of scattered things after these three. But number one is the laying down of the self. If we are in earnest and honest before God in wanting to forgive someone who has deeply hurt you, then we have to be willing to lay down ourselves first. And 1 Corinthians 6, 1 to 6, Paul says, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Now get this. I want you to hear this with all your ears. Why not let yourself be wronged? That's what the Bible says. That's not Elizabeth Elliot talking. That's in that passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Why not let yourself be wronged? And some of you would be saying, after what he did to me or after what she did to my husband, you expect me to let myself be wronged? Well, that's not Elizabeth Elliot speaking. That's the word of God. Why not let yourself be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? It's also in the Bible. Instead, Paul says, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. I talked about this one time uh, when I was at, one of, uh, at, at the Cove, where Billy Graham has a place where sem seminars are held, 
And I was talking about this business of this laying down of the self and why not let yourself be wronged. And a woman came up to me afterwards and she said that that was the very message that she needed. She didn't know that that's why God was going to send her there. But she said, I have a terrible neighbor who for years and years has been encroaching on our property. Just a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. But she said, it just made me so angry. She said, you know what I've made up my mind I'm going to do this afternoon? She said, I'm going to go back and tell that man that I will deed to him the property that he has stolen from us. Now that's forgiveness, isn't it? I never heard from her again. I hope she did what she meant to do. But the laying down of, her, of the self is the beginning of forgiveness. <clears throat> Number two, an utter surrender of my right to be right. And you're looking at a woman who likes to be right. I don't know of anybody who likes to be wrong, but I particularly want to be meticulously right. But I have to surrender my right to be right. Amy Carmichael tells the story of a Syrian Christian who was invited to preach. People decided that they wanted nothing to do with teaching that asked for holiness. We go to all the church services, they said, we give money, that's enough. But a man who, a Syrian Christian who was the son of a wealthy family, was pricked to the heart by the Holy Spirit. He was thoroughly changed. As a flame burns and shines, so did he burn, and so did he shine. But one day, a man stole his camelai, a device for drawing water from a well. The Christian said nothing. The enemy, perceiving his gentleness, demanded the loan of his bulls and his plow. Imagine that, this man who had stolen the device for drawing water, perceiving the gentleness of the Christian, demanded the loan of the bulls and the plow. And what do you think the Christian said? He said, take not only the bulls and the plow, take also the fodder. And the other man's heart melted, and he asked forgiveness and was led to the Lord. To be known to be right, to be my right, to my right to be an apology is something that I cherish. I want to be right. Well, who of us wants to be wrong, obviously? But some of us are determined that we are in the right and we're not going to let go of that. I want to be known to be right. I want my right to an apology. Somebody owes me an apology. I have a right to an apology, so I want that person to apologize. But then I come across Colossians 3, 13, and 14. It's always bad seeing a bad thing if you really don't want the will of God to open your Bible and read something like this. In Colossians 3, 13, and 14, it says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances 
you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now that is an, un, an, an utter surrender of my right to be right. Number three, relinquishment of the wish to see punishment meted out at all. Relinquishment of the wish to see punishment meted out at all. Have you wondered whether your adversary might be suffering in some way? What does she find hard to cope with, perhaps? What is her perception of my attitude toward her? A very wise, wonderful man of the 16th century, I think it was, his name was Fenelon, a Frenchman, he said, the true foundation of all spiritual life is the knowledge of our own hopelessness, our own incorrigible weakness, with unreserved confidence in God's power. We must make an entire resignation of ourselves into God's hands without a constant fretting self-inspection. Now, I know that this kind of English is a little bit difficult for some of us. It certainly helps to repeat. So I will repeat Fenelon's words. The true foundation of all spiritual life is the knowledge of our own hopeless, incorrigible weakness. With unreserved confidence in God's power, make an entire resignation of yourself into God's hands. Just say, Lord, I'm just going to put it all here, all this hurt, all this sorrow, all this wrong that has been done to me. I'm going to put it totally in your hands, Lord, and I'm going to let go of it without a constant fretting self-inspection. True confession humbles. It does not depress. I imagine that there are some people here today who are carrying along a great load of anger. And if you were to tell me your story, you'd say, but Elizabeth, you don't know how bad this was. You don't know what this person did. Maybe a woman stole your husband. I can't think of anything much worse than that. Have you forgiven her and, her and your husband? Well, thank God I've never had to forgive anything that comes even close to that. But God knows our hearts, and God knows that he is in the business of repair and change and he can completely change your heart. And that is what we need to know. It's, it's what we need to, to do if we are going to have peace. It's impossible to have peace unless we surrender our rights. True confession humbles. It does not depress. I have a very dear friend by the name of Arlita Winston. She is a very, very close friend of mine and a very wise and wonderful woman 
who has a horrible background. She and her husband went through some outrageous, ridiculous things years and years ago. But God convicted them, and they have come forth as gold. And I don't know any two people that I would be more willing and more eager to go to in difficult situations than my dear Arlita. And she told me that she had discovered four steps toward peace. Four steps toward peace. These are very well worth writing down. Number one, I confess my, parenthesis, anger, comma, hatred, comma, desire, comma, for revenge, comma, self-pity, end of that part, that parenthesis. I'll give it again. Number one, confess my, quote, anger, hatred, desire for revenge, and self-pity. We have to confess those things because they are wrong. Confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Number two is repent. And this is a 180 degree turnaround. Repent, a 180 degree turnaround. Number three, pray. Number four, well, excuse me, after pray, this is still number three, wash me with your blood and cleanse me. Pray, wash me with your blood and cleanse me. Number four, this is a hard one, bless the one who hurt you. Can you do that? Will you do that with the strength of the Lord? Forgive him and bless him. That's all part of number four. Bless the one who hurt you, forgive him and bless him. In Amy Carmichael's little tiny thin blockbuster of a book called If, that is the title of the book, If, I don't know anything that is more convicting to me than those words. Those little booklets of hers are still in print, and they are going to put you back in ways that I can't even describe now. It's, uh, she, she went to the very heart of things. She knew how to articulate specifically everything that a Christian ought to do and know. And so just a couple of instances from this little book, If. She says, if a sudden jar can cause me to speak an impatient, loving word, unloving word, if I feel injured when someone has accused me falsely, forgetting that my sinless Savior trod this path to the very end, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I feel bitterly toward those who condemn me, as it seems to me unjustly, 
forgetting that if they knew me as I know myself, they would condemn me much more. Then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I say, yes, I forgive, but I cannot forget, as though God, who twice a day washes all the sands of all the shores of all the worlds, as though he could not wash such a memory from my mind, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Those are piercing words, aren't they? Von Hugel said, the law of suffering and sacrifice is the one way to joy and possession. The law of suffering and sacrifice is the one way to joy and possession. And when that Indian Christian allowed his enemy to take his bulls and his, and his cart and the fodder, that was the one way to joy and possession. Christ suffered for sin, and he forgave those who caused his suffering. Well, I had a phone call one morning from a girl who had been in a Bible class that I used to teach, and she said, Elizabeth, do you really think that I have to, have to pardon this woman who has done such a terrible thing? And I don't remember what the terrible thing was at the time. But she wanted to know if it would be okay for her to just cut that woman off. And I said to this friend on the phone, I said, well, you're a good Catholic. You read, you use the Lord's Prayer every single day, don't you? The Our Father, they call it, if they're Catholic. And she said, yes. So I said, have you thought about what you say in those words? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses or debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, there was a sort of a thundering silence on the end of the phone. She said, is that what it says? I said, now, come on, you've been saying that all your life. You know exactly what it says. Did you ever stop to think about what it means? Well, I guess not. Never did really think about it, especially, but if you knew what this girl did to me, she said. I said, I don't know what this girl did to you, but God knows. And if this friend of yours, so-called friend, is no longer a friend, you have to get down on your knees and ask the Lord to forgive her as Christ has forgiven you. She didn't like that. She really didn't like that at all. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, let yourself be wronged. Leave self behind. Now, how do we go about forgiving somebody? First of all, we have to receive forgiveness for ourselves because God knows we are all in need of the blood of Jesus. 
We pray that God will forgive, will forgive us. We pray for grace. We offer our wills, our feelings, our hearts. And we want to treat that person who has wronged us as though it had never happened. And back to Fenelon again, he said, in order to force us out of self, some deep heart wound is necessary. Enabled in order to force us out of self, we need some deep heart wound. I think of Corrie ten Boom and the time that she tells about when she was in Germany speaking. And as she was speaking, as she was finishing up her talk, she saw a man coming down the center aisle with his hand outstretched, and she immediately recognized him as the guard who was responsible for her, sister, her sister's death. Her sister Betsy was starved to death. And here was the man who was responsible for that, coming down the aisle with his hand outstretched. And Corey said, I had to send up an SOS to the Lord. I said, Lord, how can I possibly grasp the hand of the man who killed my sister? But she said, as I walked toward him, she said, the grace was given instantly. My hand shot out. We shook hands, and she said, I knew that he had become a born-again Christian. The only reason he was there was in order to be able to tell her how sorry he had been and that God had completely transformed his life. Someday you may have that experience, a similar one. Very likely you will never have anything like that. But on the other hand, we need to be very cautious about what we are really saying to God. In our heart of hearts, are we willing to pray that prayer? Forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And a good Catholic, of course, is supposed to say that every single day. Any good Christian ought to say it very often. My friend on the phone who was so upset because of what her, her friend, her so-called so friend had done, she said, I'm not ready until I can mean the words. I said, well, how long do you think it's going to take you to mean the words? You could spend the rest of your life trying to mean the words. You have to make a decision before God, asking his help. He will help you. You must lay down your desire for vindication. Lay down your desire for apologies. Let go of wanting to be right, wanting to be in the right. And one very subtle thing, let's get rid of the pleasure of another person's humiliation. If we have humiliated that person or that person has come to you in humble asking for your forgiveness, are you going to stand on ceremony? and watch with pleasure that person's humiliation? Well, how much do you need to be forgiven? 
The Lord has given us that wonderful passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is very patient, very kind. Love never fails. Read that anytime you're wondering how you can forgive somebody. Read 1 Corinthians 13 and put your name in there. I had a letter from a young woman who, whose husband had abandoned her and her children, but he would call on the telephone and tell her to dress the children and put them out on the sidewalk because he was going to come by and take the boys for a ride. A ride. And time after time, he insisted that this was what he was going to do. And each time, of course, she just dissolved in tears at the thought that these little boys were going to be taken for a ride by their father, and their father was not going to have anything to do with the mother. And she said, when he would go and when he would take those little boys away for perhaps a morning or an afternoon, she said, I would go back and sit down in my little rocking chair, and my heart would be in tiny little pieces, so broken over what he had done to them, to her particularly. But the Lord taught her that she had to love her enemies. And the Bible is very clear about that, isn't it? We must love our en enemies. My brother Phil was a missionary up in Northwest Territory in Canada. and. When he first went there, the Indians would not come anywhere near him. My brother had gone up with the hope of giving the gospel to the Indians. There were only Indians. There were no white people in that area. And so with a great deal of prayer and taking his very tiny little South Carolina wife to the bleak, ice, icy areas of northern Canada, he discovered that none of the Indians would have anything to do with him. And Phil had tried to do everything he could to make friends with these people. He hoped that maybe they would help him chop down some trees so that he could build a cabin for himself and his wife. And the Indians just seemed to have disappeared into nowhere. He just never saw them. And he began to pray very earnestly that the Lord would send these Indians back again and he realized that the government was going to send, he discovered one day that the government was planning to send a teacher to that area. And so when the teacher arrived, of course, the Indians were aware that he, they had been sent by the, that the teacher had been sent by the Canadian government, probably with welfare checks, which of course was exactly what happened. So a man by the name of John was the man who was entrusted with the welfare checks. And John discovered that Phil Howard had finally accepted and been able to learn the, a part of the Indian language. And he was proving to the Indians that he was not a white man who was there to do them in. So when John saw this, he was very, very jealous and he realized that he had a very powerful weapon in his hands. The Indians by this time had decided that Phil Howard was okay. They had begun to sell him wood and help him with various projects that he had to do in that icy region. But when John arrived and discovered that the Indians were very fond of Phil Howard but would have nothing to do with him, 
Of course, he realized that he had this very important thing in his hands, which was the government checks. And so he just let the word out among the Indians, anybody that has anything to do with Phil Howard is not going to get his welfare check. What do you suppose happened? The Indians stopped coming to my brother. My brother went to his knees and began to pray, Lord, what can I do? What shall I do? This man has made it impossible for me to continue to work on the Slavey Indian language. Slavey was what the Indians called themselves. And no white, no one had ever uh, discovered that language or been able to uh, learn the language of those northern Indians. But my brother was a linguist, and he had had training in linguistics, and so he had begun to learn the language, which quite amazed the Indians. But when Phil discovered that this man named John was not coming around anymore, he realized the reason was because John had told the Indians that if they had anything to do with Phil Howard, they would not get their welfare checks. So one day when Phil was having his quiet time in his little cabin, he said, I felt as though my prayers were bouncing back from the ceiling. He said, I knew how bitter I felt toward John for taking away our livelihood, as it were. And so he said, I just began to pray that the Lord would forgive me for being so angry with John. And he prayed those words from the Lord's Prayer, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Now, if the other person, and we may be talking more generalities here, if in your case, if he, if he doesn't forgive the other person, then you yourself, my brother Phil himself, had to forgive in a private transaction with God. John didn't give two hoots about whether Phil was forgiving or not, because he had this wonderful weapon in his hand. So he had asked for forgiveness. He had prayed for forgiveness in a private transaction with God. And then he had begun with great difficulty to pray for John. He was on his knees one day, feeling quite sure that his words were bouncing back from the ceiling, because he still knew that there was bitterness in his heart. And so he prayed, Lord, deliver me from this bitterness. Show me something that I can do which will help John. And Lord, by your grace, draw us together as friends. Well, he got up, looked out of the, cab the tiny little window in his log cabin, and what did he see but John desperately trying to pull his boat out of the water. They lived on a great huge river, and it was close to the fall, and when the fall came in, of course, the ice came in, and anything that was in the water would be smashed to bits in the spring breakup. And so here was John desperately trying to get his boat out of the water, and Phil went tearing down to him. He said, hold on, John. He said, I have a winch. My son and I will come down and help you to get your boat out of the water, which they did. Now, it would be wonderful to be able to say that John's attitude toward my brother Phil changed immediately. 
But that was not the case. In fact, the government sent John to another place, and Phil assumed he would never see him again. But he had prayed for him, and there had been some, some months of friendliness between them. The opposition had melted, but John was sent to another area, so Phil assumed he would never see him again. He prayed that the Lord would give him grace to treat as if nothing had happened, to treat John as though nothing had happened. And he prayed that the Lord would enable him to stand with John for Christ. And I've had a situation in my own family in which I had to pray that prayer. There was a great gulf between myself and one other person in the family, and I just prayed, Lord, help me to stand with you for that person. I may be talking to people here this afternoon who have been abused, abandoned, divorced, cheated, lied about, deceived by business partners, rejected by children, spouses, parents, church people, all kinds of misunderstandings. Orville Dewey, the man of the 19th century, said, every relation to mankind of hate or scorn or neglect is full of vexation and torment. There is nothing to do with men but to love them, to contemplate their virtues with admiration, their faults with pity and forbearance, and their injuries with forgiveness. Task all the ingenuity of your mind to devise some other thing, but you can never find it. To hate your adversary will not help you. To kill him will not help you. There is nothing within the compass of the universe that can help you but to love him. But let that love flow out upon all around you. And what could harm you? How many a knot of mystery and misunderstanding would be untied by one word spoken in simple and confiding truth of heart? How many a solitary place would be made glad if love were there? And how many a dark dwelling would be filled with light? So I have here three things, one, two, three, which I will give to you, which may be of great help, I hope. Number one is get rid of all bitterness. Now, how do you do that? Ephesians 4.31 says, choose to let yourself be wronged. 1 Corinthians 6, 7 says, why not let yourself be wronged? And von Hugel has said, the law of suffering and sacrifice is the one way to joy. Yes, it will mean suffering. It will mean sacrifice. But it will also mean joy. Christ suffered. Remember, he suffered for us. Us who caused his suffering. 
How many times must I forgive? Someone asked Jesus. And Jesus' answer was, 70 times 7. So you must get rid of all bitterness. Number two, take your anger to the cross. Take your anger to the cross in order to force us out of ourselves some deep heart wound is needed. Have you had a deep heart wound? It's meant to drive you out of yourself. Go out into the sunshine of the love of God and ask him to cleanse your heart, to give you love for that person who has done you in, and see what God will do for you. When you take things to the foot of the cross, you know that that is the place where you can receive forgiveness. You can receive grace to offer the other person. Receive grace to offer the other, the one, the person who has wronged you. You offer grace to them. You offer your, your will and your feelings and your heart to God. Now, some of you may find it hard to know how, to, how do you go about doing these things? Well, I think they're really very simple because the Lord Jesus understands you and me. He knows every single one of us inside and out. He knows what we're capable of doing and he wants us to learn to trust him. And what a wonderful thing it is to be able to trust a Heavenly Father. If you can't trust anybody else, you can always trust our Heavenly Father. But he wants us to lay down our desire for vindication. You know, there's something very, um, I don't know how to put it, uh, something that we just love about uh, doing something which is right. But can you lay down your desire for vindication so that you will be the one who will be seen to be in the right? Just forget about that vindication. Lay down your desire, lay down the right to be right, and get rid of your pleasure from the other person's humiliation. Take no pleasure in the other person's humiliation. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Then number three, ponder how much you need forgiveness. And 1 Corinthians 13, again, is a very important passage. Love is very patient, very kind. Love does not envy. I haven't got it all in my head, but some of you have. Remember that passage. Love keeps no record of wrongs. And we may be, every now and then, the devil gives us a little prick to remind us to not to lay down your right to be right, but 
take pleasure from the other person's humiliation. That's what the devil would just love to do to us. But we are to take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Love is very patient, very kind. Love never fails. And number three, ponder how much you need forgiveness. I just gave you that one, didn't I? Number three, let's ponder how much you need forgiveness. Ephesians 4.31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. It's quite a list there, isn't it? Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice, which means enmity, envy, hatred, ill will, and nastiness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. All of us at some time or other have been wronged. All of us have wronged somebody else. But isn't it a wonderful thing to know that you can go to the foot of the cross and be forgiven as Christ has forgiven each one of us. Now the end of my brother's story, he certainly never expected to see his friend John again, but he was on the street in Edmonton, Alberta one day, and lo and behold, who should he run into but John? Years later, and John said, Phil, I just want you to know that what you did for me that day changed my life. But he said, I wasn't a big enough man to acknowledge that to you. But God has been doing things in my life as a result of the things that you showed me. And I just want to ask your apology, ask your kindness and your love. I want to apologize for the way in which I treated you. Now, it's not very often that things like that happen, and maybe you have to go to your grave never receiving the apology that you should have received. But by all means, let us not be the ones who refuse to offer the apology. May we always be ready to give the other the benefit of the doubt. The Lord wants to teach us Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Remember that the Lord Jesus took all of our sins to the cross. As I was growing up, my favorite hymns were the ones about the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There, a precious fountain, free to all. The healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross of Christ I glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time. And I could go on and on. Beneath the cross of Jesus, I think, has been my favorite hymn ever since I was a very small child. And I loved especially the stanza that says, O oh, safe and happy shelter, O oh, refuge tried and sweet, O oh, trysting place where heaven's love and heaven's justice meet. As to the holy patriarch a wondrous dream was given, so seems my Savior's cross to me 
a ladder up to heaven. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>